0: G'day guys and welcome back to the latest episode of Stories About Kevin. We have some new stories this week and thank you to everyone for sending them in and for giving me permission to read them out. The pod is starting to gain some more listeners worldwide. I honestly never thought I would get listens from outside Australia. I've had them from as far afield as Finland and Sweden and Canada and everywhere, like all through Europe. Like it's just, you know, I even had a listen in South America the other day, like where I can see all those analytics and it's just Insane to think that people all around the world are listening to the pod. Thank you everyone for like getting on and, and listening. Um, so remember, if you have your own stories, I don't really care what military you're from or what your service was, send them in if they're funny or interesting, please send them in to storiesaboutkevinpodcast at gmail.com. The link will be in the show description and you can get it all from there. Um, and our first story today was sent in by a child of a Finnish army soldier. So after the break, let's enjoy that. As I said before our first story today has come all the way from Finland so I hope you guys enjoy this. My dad was an NCO in the Finnish military and he once told me this. One night he had duty officer shift in the barracks while everyone was sleeping. He had just started his shift. This was the weekend so all the actual paid staff was at home spending time with their families and whatever. Suddenly he starts hearing this rhythmic rumble, rumble from a cellar through a door like someone was dragging something. So he stood up from his post and walked up to the door and opened it. He put the lights on and sees two dudes drunk off their asses rolling a shot put ball to each other. He has no idea how to react to that so he just asks what are you two doing in a stern manner? They stop rolling the shot put ball and say we're just rolling a shot put ball Mr. Sergeant while laughing and snickering. My dad has a hard time keeping a poker face at this point so he just says carry on and turns off the lights in the basement and leaves. This is something my father told me was the top tier "what the fuck" moment for him while serving. Gave me a good laugh at least, and I hope it does for you too. Now our next story is back to being an Australian soldier. I mean, we are—we did start off as an Australian podcast, so we—we we are going to have more Australian stories at least at the start. I'll set the scene. It's two thousand eleven, and C Squadron two fourteen has deployed to Afghanistan as part as part of MTF three with two RAR. My troop of ASLAVs had two gun cars and a PC, so just eight of us total based out of patrol base Wali in Mirabad Valley. We arrived early July and immediately started patrolling and took over for the boys who were already there. There were a couple of sections of infantry, an engineer section, the other cab boys in bushes and a couple of other people as well as all the ANA soldiers that lived on the base. So there was maybe 50-ish Aussies with probably as many ANA. We would occasionally do runs back to TK either spending just a day or a night or two, or up to a week, depending on the amount of maintenance we had to do or whatever else was happening. One time, we returned to TK, and whilst we were there, it was time to refill the radios with crypto. This changed every week from memory. My gun car had the egg for the troop, and Kevin was responsible for infilling the key into our radios, and he passed the egg around to the other cab boys so they could do the same. As this was happening one day, we got IDF'd, and I tried to bury myself under the lab pretty unsuccessfully. I'm an idiot. I'm not sure why I didn't just climb inside of it. Fast forward to the next day and my boss asked for a full CS check. I knew where everything was in my vehicle and all the serial numbers. So I dutifully went about checking everything. I looked at where the egg was supposed to be stored and I couldn't find it. I searched the rest of the vehicle and couldn't see it anywhere. So I asked Kevin where he left it and he said, Sergeant so-and-so has it. So we went to see him and he said he was never given it. At this point, we then asked everyone else and no one had it. Alarm bells start ringing and I told Kevin he needs to tell the boss as the entirety of NATO's Afghanistan fields for their radios were potentially at risk. My boss acts exactly how you'd expect a W2 to act. Kevin and I stripped the vehicle of everything, but still can't find it. I'm then forced with Kevin to emi-bob the entirety of TK Base looking for this egg, but we can't find it. Kevin is still adamant he hasn't lost it and that he gave it to someone else. Everyone else has denied ever having it. Anyway, doing all we could, we head back to patrol base Wali with the future charge hanging over our head. In the meantime, all of NATO in Afghanistan has to change their crypto fields as it could have been compromised. So this isn't a small fuck up by any means. We fast forward three weeks and we're out on patrol for over a week. As we're returning back to Wali, the ANA controlled patrol base Muhammad, which was a few clicks further up the valley, radioed through asking for help to recover a water truck which has been hit by an RPG. The RPG went through the driver's side door, cut the driver in half, and exited the passenger side door without exploding. But it did enough residual damage to make the truck unserviceable. So we attached some trains and dragged the truck back to their base. We stayed for a quick 10 minute chat and then left back along to Wali along Route Whale. If you know, you know, the amount of IEDs on this fucking route was unbelievable. Finally, we arrived back to Wali at lunchtime. And as I'm getting the vehicle ready to go out again, as I would do every time we come back, Kevin leans into the vehicle and tells me he can't find his pistol. I tell him it must be here and we begin searching the vehicle again. At this stage, my boss yells at us to go have lunch and worry about the vehicle later. I tell him I'm just finishing up and we'll be out in a minute. I tell Kevin, the pistol is not in here and you need to go tell the boss, who will probably knock him out. So he has to tell him. I watch as Kevin goes up to tell our boss. I'm watching from a distance and I see my boss just stare at him for a few seconds and then just hang his head. He immediately summons the boys. We mount up and drive back to Muhammad without searching at all along the way. Somehow, we didn't get blown up this time. And on arrival at Muhammad, the ANA are interested to see us. We ask for the pistol, assuming it must be on the base, and that they have it. They say they have it, but they want 500 US dollars to give it back to us. We end up in a standoff. A couple dozen of us lined up against the 30 or so of them, and I thought, holy shit, This is about to happen. This will be the biggest green on blue so far for the war. Our boss tells them that we aren't leaving without it. One way or the other, and eventually, himself and the ANA commander go behind closed doors, and a few minutes later, my boss returns with the pistol. So now Kevin has two charges hanging over his head, and our boss kicks him out of our vehicle to swap places with another dig, as he can't look at him. I shit you not, when we get back to Wali, one of the infantry guys is leaning on the side of one of the Bushmasters where the winch is, looks down, and finds the egg wedged behind the winch. That fucking thing has somehow managed to wedge itself in there for three weeks as we drove over everything the dash crew offer. Kevin must have placed the egg on top of the winch compartment when we got IDF'd and just forgotten about it, and it's fallen down and ended up wedged behind the winch. So the good news is, we found the egg and the pistol. The bad news is that Kevin lost them in the first place. He was charged about $7,000 and issued seven days of ROPs. He wasn't allowed a pistol anymore, no air con, no cold drinks, CrossFit at 05 and again at 1,700 each day with our CrossFit Psycho Troop Corporal. Physical work from o five hundred to 2.300 each day, and he got dreadfully skinny from losing about seven kilo in a week. Our boss also got charged. The only time in his career, and he lost seniority from it. So he's less than impressed. Later on in the trip, this same Kevin accidentally shot a pen flare into my back and set my rig on fire. But that was actually pretty funny. We also had another Kevin on the same trip who lost a MAG 58 which was never recovered. Driving through the dash, they didn't have the 58 secured properly on the rear gun mount and the dig on the gun decided we, he had enough and sat down inside the vehicle. Just didn't watch out. When they arrived it was gone and when we redrove the route we never found it. It was never found. So that was a bit of a ride. Like, I'll be interested to hear, hear more about that missing 58. And, like, it's just, it just blows me away that, like, because as, as someone who witnessed the, the calibre of what was required to go on a trip sometimes, it amazes me that they still managed to be people like this that managed to slip through the cracks and get onto, on, onto Afghan trips and, and go over. Um, but, like, it's, it's one of those things. Like, you, you've got to remember half the time, it's, it's always right place, right time. When you are uh, and with the right skills like as long as you, you tick those three boxes you're pretty you're pretty set in, in being able to, to do a lot in your career uh, it's just yeah just mostly good luck so yeah let's keep going Our next story comes from the land of the maple syrup where we think everyone is nice but where their soldiers have been awarded 99 Victoria crosses and they decided to burn down the White House for a fun weekend this story is not as glorious as any of those but it's still good. It was my first day in the Canadian Army Reserve Force. Just to give you a little context for those who don't know, the Reserve Forces are people that get their military training part-time with, summers and weekends. Depending on what unit you are, you get equipped with pretty much what is left, old equipment and clothes. It is normal that they equip regular forces first, so it's really not a big deal. They give us our stuff a couple of days before training started, and gave us a time and a place to go with our gear. All they had for me, they could fit in the canvas rucksack that dates from the eighties. It was winter time and I was working in forestry, so I wasn't wearing good clothes. I was going to train with the military and I was proud as a peacock. Every time someone looked at me, I thought it was because they were happy to see a soldier until a car stopped in front of me blocking the road and asked me, do you need a place to sleep? I did not understand it all while he was asking me that. So I just answered, no, I'm fine, thanks. He gave me a card and said, if you ever need something, you can always go to this place. When I looked down, it was the card of the local homeless shelter. He was full of good intentions but let me tell you, the rest of the walk felt different. So, from that story, it seems Reserves are pretty much treated the same uh, worldwide. Part-time soldiers get part-time care from the main forces. So, I mean, they only turn up for Saturdays and Sundays, so why should we give them any good gear? And that is a joke for anyone in the Reserves. Um, I'm just talking to the general attitude that most, most of the military has for, for Reserves. Um, now for our next story, We're going to pop back to Australia, kind of. We're going to go back in time. My great-grandfather was a medic during the Second World War. Mum says he was a nurse. To my understanding, they're the same thing. I don't know how true this story is, but to my family, we believe it is true. And it seems that the dates and times match up to the records we have, even if the reasons don't. We only have the full story from pop, it seems. Anyway, he was posted to Singapore in December of 1941. He said it was a beautiful place, beautiful weather, and apparently, to his dying day, said that it was full of beautiful women and as much cheap beer as you could drink. He never did go back. He lost his leg in the war and spent the rest of his life reasonably poor, given the time he couldn't really work a good job with one leg. Anyway, the day came near the end of January, where they decided they wanted to put him on a hospital ship. There were needs for medical staff to head out in the Pacific further, so he was told his holiday was over and he needed to get on with the war. He tried everything to stay. Begged, cried, everything, including at one point getting drunk and riding his bicycle into a river to try and stay in Singapore on medical grounds. A couple of days later, at the start of February, he got on a ship and sailed out of Singapore harbour. Less than a week later, they were told that Singapore had fallen, and he said the ship was silent. After the war, when they found out what happened to those who stayed behind, he knew to never question fate. He lived the rest of his life with a pretty carefree attitude that whatever happened to him happened for a reason and that you can't cheat your destiny. His destiny was to get on that ship, and he was adamant that if he stayed in Singapore, he would have been either killed by the Japanese or in a concentration camp. But he also never caught another boat after the war, not even the ferries in Sydney where he lived, trains and buses. He said he'd spent enough time on boats. So that that wasn't so much a Kevin story. It was, you know, but it was a, a good, interesting story. And I do like to hear stories like this come through um, Because that's that's I think what the what the podcast is evolving into is more of a story podcast and that is that is fine Um, I'm actually quite enjoying reading what's coming into the inbox and picking out the best and the, The the nicest stories that we can actually get into the pod So our next story is from the US Army back in the 1980s So this happened in 1987 At Fort Riley KS, I was in a support battalion as an out of my MOS 52C, or 52C, I think this says TAMS Clark, T-A-M-M-S. I'm going to say TAMS. So, I was in a support battalion as an out of my MOS 52C TAMS Clark for the motor pool. Worked for a great bunch of guys. Platoon sergeant was fantastic. Motor pool sergeant was cool as hell. A little background, when I got to the company from Germany, I was greeted with, yay, we got an air conditioner and heating repairer. Nope. In the two years since AIT, I hadn't touched anything in my MOS, but instead repaired turbine engines, 60k dual generators, for a Patriot unit, and I hated every minute of it. But I regressed. So because the current TAMS clerk was leaving, the motor sergeant made me the new TAMS clerk, and the paperwork was a mess. Oh yeah and we had command IG inspection in four weeks. So I took over, redid all the paperwork and got everything in order. After the inspection, I got an AAM for a job well done. My chief warrant, motor sergeant and platoon sergeant all thought I was the shit. I then had a PT test about a week later. The army just changed its standards and this was the first in the new standards. Old max for me was 68 push-ups, 69 sit-ups and 13.45 in a two mile run which I could easily smash. New standard was 80, 82, and 1310. I went out and crushed it with a 90, 90, and 1150. Oh yeah, and I smoked. And they awarded me another AAM. So what's the problem with this? New captain comes in about three months later. Female, OCS, former enlisted, and thinks she knows everything, and thinks she knows everyone else's job, and she hates smokers. Three months later, PT test. I max again. But we go for a weigh in this time, and the scale was off by 5 pounds over, which caused mine and everyone else to weigh in 5 pounds heavier than previous. Commander decides that all of us that have put on weight will be taped. Even as they were all complaining that the scale was off, she also decided to make me tape, even though I was 175 pounds, which was still 5 pounds under my maximum weight for the army. What the fuck? So as we're having 50 personnel standing in line to be taped, in walks a delivery guy from Domino's, asking if anyone wanted to buy an extra pizza. I did, and I ate it while waiting in line to be taped. Even as the commander, to her chagrin, walked up and down the hallway to her office. By the way, I was at 15% fat, or about 8% under, and the Army tape program was a joke. So I've actually seen these come and go. Like When I was in the military, I saw this, this come and go to the point where like one of the last units I was posted to in, in Australia, we weren't allowed the, the fat truck or the gut truck to come around because a previous CO had decided that the, the snacks and the fat truck and the drinks were the reason that people were lazy and not passing fitness tests. So he just banned it, and then it had just stayed that way for, for years. Um, so, yeah, like I, I can see how one, one commander can, can really change how that sort of thing goes, because just based on their, their poor understanding of, of how how things work, like, I mean, uh, this is maybe just too, too much common sense, but if you're passing the fitness test, what's the damn problem? Like, you, you're there to be fit, it's a minimum standard, you meet the standard, off you go. If you can beat the standard, even better. Like back when we had, uh, I, I don't think it's a thing in the, in the Australian military anymore, but we had the pills one and pills two. I was never fit enough to, to, to score a pill score. Um I was I was flat out hitting the basic but I was a truckie. Um but like you've got to remember like people that uh, it was in an incentive. If you met the but met the standard, okay, you, you met the basic standard, if you got pills one or pills two, then even if you and another bloke did the exact same amount of work, they'd rank you higher. So and this guy, you know, he, he managed to absolutely smash out his fitness test and eat a pizza and still come in under his body fat weigh in. So I don't see a problem with the, with what he was doing and his commander sounds like a fucking dickhead. So the next story is one that I can rally to. Being in Darwin and having to do all the yearly cyclone prep, this was a nightmare. And honestly I thought this was just a SISB thing but it seems like it's more one brigade like utter stupidity because um, I used to have to do this all the time myself. Hey man, as you know Darwin gets a lot of cyclones. When I was there, we had three cyclone warnings. The first season, I thought it was intense. But the cyclone parties were fucking me. I think a significant chunk of my drinking in my life was done in Darwin. Anyway, I was at one armoured, and we had to cyclone prep the yard for those that never had the fun. Anything that is light, loose, or could be a danger to anyone in any way, need to be stowed away inside, tied down, put away, and made sure that nothing could happen to it. In a cyclone, anything could become a high-velocity killing machine. And if the SSM was to be believed, especially the durry butts in the smokers' area. Anyway, we spent a whole day packing down, stuffing chairs and tables and shit into brewer rooms, making sure all doors and windows were closed and locked, making sure the compound had been emi 90 billion fucking times. We are about to knock off when the SSM came down and asked what the fuck we were doing. As we had no sergeant at the time, one of our corporals was standing in for a couple of days until sergeant was back. When he told the SSM this, he was absolutely livid because not a fucking thing has been done to make this place safe in a cyclone. We were all confused, until the SSM started telling us what we'd failed to do. The signs that are attached to the fence, you know the ones that are needed because the Q store has acid, there's oil in the workshop, the truckies have fuel, the ones that tell you to report to the guard room and that it's a restricted area and watch out for vehicle amendments. All of those had to come down. For the vehicles, we'd taken our lead off the truckies, anything that could be damaged in a storm so windows was faced in. We spent half the day doing this and then because it looked like shit, we turned every other piece of equipment around and faced it in. We were then told this was wrong. You see, the SSM was concerned that any flying debris might get caught on the cyclone fence around the compound. And once it was caught in the fence, the fence would start gathering debris. And once it started gathering debris, it would start acting like a sail. We're all stupid because we hadn't used our fucking brains to figure this out. And what we need to do is get all the vehicles out of the hangars, line them up against the fence and go see the truckies, the Q store, and sign out all the chains and straps from them and chain and strap the vehicles to the fence. This was so that we could anchor the fence to the vehicles, which would hopefully stop the fence from collecting debris, becoming a sail and flying away in the storm. Much to everyone's amusement, one of the corporals asked him if that was a legitimate concern. And that if that was a legitimate concern, should we not also be worried that, like a sailing ship, the fence is going to turn into one big sail, lift the vehicles and cause them to fly away? To which the SSM replied, and I shit you not, if the wind gets strong enough to do that, the straps and chains should break and the fence should be free from the vehicles. Fuck you, woe 2 Kevin. You're a fucking idiot. Yeah, like I... I we, we did something similar. Like, um, so at one season... We, we had these little little fucking stupid D rings. They are in like so basically they'd removed four like one paver, and they'd removed all the pavers surrounding it. They put a D ring down in place of the initial paver and put all the other pavers down to hold it down. Um, and they that was in our trailer parking area, and they wanted us to they wanted us to park the trailers next to these D rings that were just held in by the by the pavers and the bricks around them, and strap them. Strap the, the trailers to the D rings to stop the trailers. Like keeping in mind, these are our eight and t- eight, eight and twelve ton trailers. They're not light. Um, they're, they're they're pretty beefy. Uh, but to stop them blowing away, and yeah, we, we found out very quickly that you could only put just the minor a tiniest amount of tension on on these D rings because otherwise you'd rip them clean out the fucking ground. Um, and like the area where we parked our trailers used to belong to Ramey, and. When we were talking to Raimi, they actually told us that the whole point of them being there was so that when they spread out their tarps and cam nets and stuff and washed them, they could tie the tarps and cam nets to the D-rings just to stop the wind picking them up and fucking their day up. Um, So yeah, like that was uh, cyclone prep. Like, I just fucking used to shit. Oh, now I'm fucking triggered. Um, Okay, but like, yeah, it makes you wonder who fucking let these people graduate kindergarten, let alone... Go forward, join the military, and then come up with these stupid ideas and be able to inflict them on other people. Like, so, anyways, I'm triggered now, so I'm gonna go have a beer, um, and you guys can, I'm releasing this on Monday mornings now, which is going to be the plan. Uh, we're gonna try and get this out early Monday morning so that you can all listen to it on your way to work. Give, give a good, give a better start to your week anyway. We're aiming for around a 20 to 30 minute runtime, which should get most people's commutes. Um, and if you want to send your stories in, please send them in to storiesaboutkevinpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll get them onto the pod. Um, we also have a few things planned over the next few weeks. I'm currently working on teeing up a meeting with some people that are experts on DVA to help discuss some things that are going on in the DVA space to help help bring people some awareness to that, um, as well as probably hope give some people some advice and points to go for their claims and... and all that sort of stuff if they're going out the door, and uh, we're also I'm also talking to someone who has worked at recruiting, and uh, will be able to give some advice on people that are looking to join the military and how to how to approach recruiting and be a good candidate for getting into into the relevant services. Um, but that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.